This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, July 29th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The entry of Sweden and Finland into NATO is raising the question for many people, why shouldn't Ukraine be a NATO member? Cato's Justin Logan explains precisely why not Ukraine. There was a real ambiguity, especially after the Cold War, particularly in the 1990s, I think by the Bush administration, it was quite clear that the Americans had closed the door, as it were, to Russia. But during the 1990s, especially, there was a real provocation, I guess you could say, particularly from the Russian side about, hey, why don't we join NATO? But it became clear that there was very little appetite to fudge NATO's criteria for membership enough to allow Russia to join. So NATO's purpose in the modern age. Well, this, how long do we have here, Caleb? Look, I mean, if you want to go all the way back to the founding of NATO, General Lionel Pug Ismay famously quipped that the purpose of NATO was to keep the Americans in, the Soviets out, and the Germans down. So now the question you have is, how difficult are those tasks, right? The Americans seem terribly disinclined to leave Europe. The Germans, if anything, are too disinclined to step up. They're too eager to stay down. And if we think about the Russians in the place of the Soviets here, they're having a hell of a time bullying a much smaller, much weaker neighbor in the form of Ukraine. So if we think about the American point of view, right, we engaged in a war against Wilhelmine Germany, a war against Nazi Germany, and then a protracted security competition with the Soviet Union in the form of the Cold War to prevent one country from dominating Europe, right? We thought that if one country dominated Europe, it would pose a threat to the United States, justifiably in my view. So you have to ask yourself, are we in a position where Russia or Germany has a shot at dominating Europe? And my answer to that question is no. And with that being the answer to that question, I think we should be looking at handing European security off to the Europeans. But unfortunately, it looks to my mind that the Biden administration is doing just the opposite. You have said, and I don't know if this is original to you, but if it is, congratulations, that the sort of the grand bargain that the U.S. struck with NATO is that in exchange for the U.S. defending Europe, the Europeans let us. Yeah, I stole it from Ben Friedman, but he stole it from Harvey Sapolsky. So it's a you know long tradition of theft. Uh, but but the, re- the reason I mention that is because it, it seems that in the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine, that the U.S. policy, the U.S. involvement in NATO has made it more difficult relatively for Ukraine's neighbors to step up. Yeah, it, it's. I wouldn't say it's made it more difficult. It's made it less imperative, right? If you imagine a world in which the United States said, this is primarily a European problem, and were it the case that the Russians looked like they had a shot at dominating Europe, that they not just had, were going to conquer Ukraine, but had a shot at conquering chunks of Poland and threatening Germany, then it, that would pique our interest as it did in World War II, for example. That would scare the hell out of the Europeans. And it would scare the hell out of the Europeans to the point that they would really be incentivized strongly to deliver on the promise of the German Zeitenwende, right? The dawn of a new era that was supposed to have happened after the invasion of Ukraine. But with the Americans, as the Biden administration did, 
sending another 20,000 troops into the breach in Europe to reassure the Europeans of the strength of the American commitment, with President Biden saying that the Americans themselves will, quote, defend every inch of NATO territory, calling the U.S. commitment to NATO a sacred commitment, Biden thinking of himself as a good Catholic boy. The, the problem with reassurance is that you may successfully reassure your allies. And if you do successfully reassure your allies, they may not feel anxious enough to do terribly much more for their own security. And I'm afraid with some notable exceptions, Poland being a signal example, right? Poland is pushing the share of GDP that they're dedicating to defense well north of 3% of GDP, which is a notable exception to the European norm. Again, the problem with reassurance is that you may successfully reassure your partners. And this has been an enduring dynamic, particularly in the NATO alliance, where the United States assumes for itself a disproportionate share of the load of securing its allies, and then at the same time berates its allies for not doing more. And in a sense, that's not really a fair thing to do, right? If we agree to defend our allies, it's not really fair to complain that they agree to let us, right? It's, it's sort of a sensible thing to do. If somebody agrees to pick up the tab for dinner and then complains about it afterward, well, you agreed to pick up the tab. I'm sorry, you shouldn't have done that, you know? In the current state, Finland and Sweden are joining NATO. What does that mean? Well, it's always hard. Like most government programs, new NATO members are advertised as, you know, paying for themselves or being, if anything, a net benefit, right? Most government programs are advertised that way. And so to take one example, the Baltic states, which are extremely small, extremely vulnerable countries, who joined the alliance in 2004, there was no, not even a plan for their defense until 2010, and the Poles and the Baltic states after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 had to beg the alliance to come up with a plan for defending the Balts after that. So finally, in 2010, the alliance came up with a plan for defending them. So these countries are advertised on the front end as being net contributors to the alliance. So you heard a lot, in particular in the case of Finland, before it joined the alliance, well, the Finns really stuck it to the Soviets during the Winter War, that, you know, the Soviets really bled terribly there. Well, th th that's true. The Soviets did really bleed terribly there. They also annexed huge chunks of Finland's territory. And, you know, if you look at a country like Finland, it's a country of about six million people. It has an, about an 810-mile border with Russia. And if you think about a country with about 6 million people, with about an 810-mile border with Russia, and you think about it in the context of what has been revealed again as the Russian way of war, which is to throw artillery at a problem until it goes away, th this is a real problem, right? It's not the case that... This is a sort of a, a, a gee whiz technology conflict where, you know, NATO is going to throw its best technology at a problem and Russia is going to throw its best technology at a problem and we're going to see whose technology wins. Russia engages in grueling, brutal, grotesque ground wars that drag on and on and on. 
And so I think there, there was a real shading of the, 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 the calculus in the context of Finland to say, you know, shading of the history of the Winter War and a shading of what is true, which is that Finland trains for one mission, which is fighting, a, fighting off a Russian invasion. Finland has good defense technology of its own. Finland takes its defense mission seriously. But, you know, the best estimates that we have for what it will take to bring Finland's defense to NATO standards are, you know, billions of dollars up front and hundreds of millions of dollars of additional effort each year. Now, you can say it's worth it. You know, we think it's worth it to add another tally to the debit side of the column from Russia's point of view for the cost of invading Ukraine. But it's just not honest to say, you know, to ignore all of the costs of adding Finland to NATO and amplify all of the benefits in the course of the making the case for its succession. But perennially through history, that's what we've done with NATO, new NATO members is to sweep the costs under the table and amplify the benefits. And that's frustrating, but that's just, you know, history repeating itself. And and so what is what do NATO members get out of dangling this treat in front of new potential NATO members. You know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about Ukraine joining NATO, which I don't know how likely that is. It seems unlikely. Um, but to, what, what do existing NATO members, incumbents, get out of dangling that treat in front of other countries? I mean, it's very impolitic to put it this way. It, 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 it offends cosmopolitan ears. But when you think about NATO doing something, you really want to think about the United States. When the United States is highly motivated to do something in NATO, it gets its way. And I think the Vilnius summit revealed that in the case of Ukraine, the Biden administration did not want even to provide a pathway for Ukraine to join NATO. Now, you may say NATO waived the so-called MAP requirement, a membership action plan is NATO's quintessentially bureaucratic roadmap, if you will, for aspiring members to say, we need to have our domestic house in order in such and such a fashion. We need to have our military in order in such and such a fashion. And NATO, in the case of Ukraine, said you won't be held to the map requirement. You won't have you won't have to have a map to join NATO. NATO reiterated in the case of Ukraine that your future is in NATO. But in so doing, it said, and I'm loosely paraphrasing here, you know, Ukraine will become a member of NATO when the conditions are met, period. And you say to yourself, what are the conditions? No specificity. And I think that's indicative of the Biden administration's realization that there are enormous costs to bringing Ukraine into NATO. And so, you know, there was a lot of braggadocio from previously sober members of NATO like France to say, you know, we favor a pathway to NATO membership for Ukraine. But endogenous to that decision was the realization that the Americans and the Germans were absolutely going to say no. So it's very easy in a 31 or potentially 32 member alliance to be really chesty and forward leaning on something when you know that a major veto player will stop it from happening. So there's a little bit of crude game theory happening here when, uh, you know, it's very exciting not to be the bad guy, not to be the stick in the mud when you know that somebody else will. If this guy wasn't holding me back, 
you better watch out. Exactly. So wouldn't it benefit some countries in NATO to say, yeah, we definitely want Ukraine to be in NATO and be totally honest about that fact, knowing that the U.S. would be primarily responsible? So through history, it's always been the case that frontline nations have always been in favor of expansion. And this is intuitively logical, right? You never you never want to be the frontline state of an alliance, right? If, if, if I'm the frontline state today and there's a buffer between me and the adversary, I would definitely like him to be the frontline state. And all of a sudden I'm behind the frontline. So you've seen this in the case, you know, and it's not the case that, for example, if NATO were brought in, the Baltic states would, of course, still have their own front line. But there would be a huge shift of focus from Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania to Ukraine for reasons that are obvious. But you've seen historically over time, again, as the alliance has pushed eastward continually through several rounds of expansion, it's always been the case that those frontline states have been in favor of pushing the, the frontier forward. And it's the case in, in, in this instance as well. Poland has been pushing very hard and the Baltic states have been pushing very hard as well. And that's understandable. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's an interesting conceptual question here for the sort of, you know, political theory hounds out there. How big could an alliance become, a formal treaty alliance, and still be about one thing, right? You know, the Soviet threat when NATO was formed was very clarifying. The alliance was much smaller. Um, it was much more geographically bounded. But as time has passed, as the Soviet threat has receded, as the Russian threat now has been revealed to be quite geographically bounded, you know, the, the different countries have different interests, right? Banal observation, but still bears bears mentioning. So you have a country like Turkey, right? You have a country like Hungary. You have countries like Spain and Portugal, countries like Canada, countries like the Baltic states. These countries have very different interests, understandably, and not to fault any of their interests. And so there are real, you know, centrifugal forces pulling in different directions here. And so it's quite difficult if you take each country as an equal member with equal interests taken equally to get focus and to get unity of effort. Now, again, as I mentioned before, the United States has an awfully important role to play here. You really don't want to tick off the United States terribly much, no matter which country you are. And so there's been an awful lot of pulling and hauling when it comes to Turkey, for example. But, I, you know, I think it is interesting the extent to which there is if you will, an east-west, and again, this is oversimplified, Turkey's kind of in the east, but it hasn't really been terribly forward-leaning on Russia, but an east-west distinction where you have, again, countries like Poland, countries like the Baltic states with a very Russia-focused, very forward-leaning posture, and then countries in the west, sort of the, the traditional NATO allies, with a more quiescent, lower defense spending, lower threat perception, greater appetite for ending the war. And, you know, it's quite difficult, in a sense, to be the United States, to be wrangling this kind of motley gallery of states with very different threat perceptions to have, you know, and early on in the war, there was this great self-congratulation around NATO unity. I think NATO unity has really been mythical since the very early days of the war. There have been very, very different perceptions about any number of things from arming Ukraine to aid to defense spending, et cetera. 
And again, you know, not to be too wonky about it, but it is an interesting political science kind of question. How big can alliances get and still focus on, on one problem? And I think, you know, we're kind of running through that problem in real time. How does the U.S., you know, it seems like exiting NATO is a non-starter, but how does the U.S. step down and make clear credibly to the other countries in the alliance to step up? Well, you know, the answer here is is maybe one that's unpleasant to many people. I mean, you know, President Trump was many things, but an artful statesman, I don't think many people would characterize him as. But even his somewhat scattershot diplomacy, if you want to characterize it that way, did get the Europeans' attention. I mean, it was extremely nerve-wracking to European diplomats. Even the, you know, let me back up a little bit. It would be, as you pointed out, it would be extremely difficult to get the United States out of NATO. You're even seeing moves in Congress to try, and I don't know the constitutional law here, but to try to prevent a president, U.S. president from removing the United States from NATO. I kind of doubt that the Congress can do that, but they're trying because they're afraid that if Trump were to take the presidency again or a Trumpish president, that, that he might try. So there's there's a lot of anxiety about a Trumpy president doing so. And I think it scared the heck out of the Europeans. And to the extent you did see a blip in European defense spending, you saw it toward the tail end of the Trump administration. And some of that was probably caused by the first Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, rattling the Europeans a little bit and getting a little bit more defense spending spun up in the second half of the teens. But the Europeans were really rattled, and there was some reporting that came out toward the end of the Trump administration, 2019 in particular, that Trump wanted to pull the United States out of NATO. So I think that, you know, again, Trump was not a, a super focused and artful statesman, but someone like Trump could really scare the heck out of the Europeans and, you know, get them to, to, to focus intently on the prospect of a Europe without the United States. Justin Logan directs defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 